Hello, Podcast Village. Welcome to Colorblind Race Across Generations. I'm your host, Vanessa Eccles, along with technical producer Keith. Well, this was quite a feat we had this episode. This is a this is this is an all-star panel. <laughs> yes. And we're we're just amazed that we're able to get everyone in one room at one time. Exactly. And into micro different microphones. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of us for yes, this. We're, this is a new level, guys. So let me give you the rundown of the people we have. I think I will post a picture on the Colorblind website so you can see these people because we had a lot. Yes. But we achieved our goal. We had different races. We had different uh, ages. So that's what the podcast is all about. Some of these um, have been with us before. You will remember Hank Van Putten facilitator at the Peace and Justice Institute at Valencia College. He's the one that I call The Voice. Amy Selikoff, who is a writer and producer of Somebody's History. Um, she calls herself, I think she said, it's the white woman understanding the, the, the black journey, the African-American journey. Uh, Ted Bogert, host of The Ted Show on Facebook Live. He's always lively. And Elizabeth Thompson, who is the executive director of the Wells Built Museum of African American History and Culture, and Dr. Fawn Gordon, the professor of uh, Africana Studies at UCF. That's a lot of people. They have all been on the podcast before except for Elizabeth. And we're talking about Black History Month. In March. Exactly. So we waited for Black History Month to be over. So that we could do a podcast. This is a recap. Yeah, so that we could do a podcast about. <laughs> How uh, we feel it. Let's check in. <laughs> they were checking in on Black History Month. But we're talking about some serious uh, issues here about whether we need Black History Month. Is it still relevant? And why it got started in the first place. And then the guests kind of went off the rails and talked about all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that's that's and okay, too. Exactly. And then we brought it back to uh, Black History Month. But even when they went off the rails, it really is relevant to the whole discussion about um, just how black history fits into American history because it is American history. So let's listen in. Welcome to our guest. We have a full house today. Dr. Fawn Gordon back with us from UCF. Good evening. And Amy Selikoff with us from the one-woman show about uh, race, a white woman's perspective on race. Well, hello. And we have the man that I call The Voice, Hank Van Putten from uh, Valencia's Peace and Justice Institute. Thank you, Vanessa, for inviting me back. Of course. Ted Bogert from The Ted Bogert Show. Happy to be here. And Elizabeth Thompson, first-timer with us from the Wellsbuilt Museum here in Orlando. Thank you. I'm glad to join. All right, so let's get right into this topic. Is Black History Month still relevant? I'll ask you first, Ted, because this started from a conversation we had when I was on your Facebook Live show. Why did you want to do that show about Black History Month? Well, the, the, actually, the main reason I wanted to do it is because I felt like uh, this year specifically— there wasn't a lot of hoopla. There wasn't a lot of publicity or news about Black History Month. And I thought, God, is it only me? Is it just me not understanding what's going on? And so I wanted you and Retta Hussein to come on and talk about it because I felt like the media had forgotten it. I felt like the news had forgotten it. I felt like there was not the uh, usual pomp and circumstance uh, surrounding it, and I couldn't figure out why. So that's why I wanted to have that show with you guys on there. And thank you for being on. Excellent. So it was uh, very interesting. And so we had a, a white man's perspective about Black History Month. And I say that because that's what the podcast is all about, different races, different ages, talking about that. So I'll turn to Dr. Gordon. Is it still relevant? I think so. Otherwise, we won't have a complete narrative of American history if we leave out black history, because it is American history. Unequivocally, yes. Um, And for um, the reason, one of the reasons that the doctor just mentioned, um, that it is a part of American history. And if we leave those important stories out, um, then we're not telling the complete history of America. And Amy? Absolutely. Um, As a public school teacher, Uh, I firmly believe that it is a piece of accountability to ensure that um, part of 
black history gets covered in at least one month. That's one of the reasons why we still need black history around as a month. Not just that black history stays within that month, but to make sure it gets covered sometime. And Elizabeth, as the executive director of a museum and you're surrounded by things that remind you of black history seven days a week. I absolutely think it is uh, 100%. I do have the luxury of working in a physical space where uh, there's so much dedicated to African-American history. Most people don't, and they need at least the reminder that this history is here and it's important and it is a part of the tapestry of the whole of the U.S. So I 100% think that it's relevant and necessary. So are schools doing a good job of incorporating it? You know, we'd like to say that black history is a part of American history. Are they doing a, a good job, or maybe I should say, are they doing a better job of incorporating it? And Amy, you're in the school system. Uh, you're at a Montessori school. So what are your thoughts? I mean, I really have the freedom to be able to do a lot of different things. So for me, within my curriculum, um, I did a unit called From Slavery to Civil Rights, and it culminated with an encompassing civil rights mini project for the kids to choose different civil rights leaders and explore. Um, I kind of broaden it just outside of black history, but one of the cool things is that so many of the kids just were excited to learn this topic because outside of Dr. King or um, even some of them who knew who Malcolm X was, they were so excited that, oh, there are more people. Oh, Ruby Bridges, who is that? Like, just learning that it's more than three people, including Rosa Parks, and that, they, yeah, that there's a colorful cast involved in this and that they, too, can see their stories in it with the Children's March. So this is very interesting because producer Keith, when we came up with his topics, said that he learned in school that Martin Luther King had a dream, uh, Rosa Parks. Peanuts. Oh, yeah. He learned about peanuts. <laughs> he said black people invented peanuts. And who was the other character? Was it Rosa Parks that you learned something about? I know one of them is that Oprah had a lot of money. Yes. He said that was kind of the extent <laughs> of what they learned for Black History Month. So as a community, what do we do? What, what do we do? You know, there's, there's certainly more to the month than just that. Well, I just so feel like we're not we doing do? anything. That that was my whole point of trying to have you guys on the show, is I felt like this year specifically, and maybe I wasn't in tune previously, but it just felt like, I mean, there wasn't even a Hallmark movie that I, uh, it, it was just, it was insane. I felt like there was absolutely no attention paid to it. And then as a community, I'm sure we did it. I'm sure we did something. But the problem is, is I didn't know what we did. And I feel like I'm pretty much in touch with a lot of the media that goes on in the city and in our community. And I just felt like there was not enough done. And whatever was done was not making an impact where I actually recognized it and uh, watched it. Is some of that, though, because, for lack of a better way to put it, the novelty of it has worn off after so many years? Well, we, is it still me? We, <laughs> we, we had this discussion a little bit when Hank was on the show when we were talking about how Black History Month, um, I, one of the questions I asked as the um, uh, token white man on that particular board was, talk to me about we why we have- resident. Oh, resident, man. I'm yes. sorry. <laughs> Don't write me or give me any trouble. Um, but. Uh, I, I didn't understand, so I, I understood, but I wanted to know why people thought it was important to have a Black History Month. And of course, Hank and Retta and you were very uh, good about explaining to me, well, every month is White History Month, so why can we not have a Black History Month? So I will never forget that, among many things that <laughs> Hank shared. Uh, but I, I feel like it, it is. It's almost become more desensitized to it. I just didn't expect it this year, maybe because I'm more in tune, because you all have been on the show. I expected there to be more of it, more of a discussion about it out in the news, out in media, out in uh, community events, and I just felt like there was absolutely nothing. If I hadn't been cognizant of it and invited you on, I'm not sure anybody would have even paid attention to it. Hank, what are you... Uh I can see you're raring to go. That, I, I think that um, we have to 
move away from the heroes and holidays aspect of, of Black History Month um, and make it um, a part of the curriculum that happens throughout the school year. Um, for example, the, um, the celebration around um, the Montgomery bus boycott happened in December. Um, there are many things to be learned about the Montgomery bus boycott um, that lasted for over 400 days. And the um, experiences not only of, of, of black and brown folks, but of white folks as well during that time is an important part um, of history. Um, understanding that um, the contributions of many different types of people during the Second World War, and especially um, the, the Red Tail Angels, um, if we go back to World War I and the Hellfighters, um, those are all part of, of history um, that should be taught not just in February but throughout the entire school year so that we move from um, what, what's referred to as a, a contributions or a monocultural uh, approach, um, move beyond that to um, what sometimes becomes an add-on approach. And, and the add-on is if you can think of your history books and you see the little boxes on the side of the page, that's the add-on approach, um, to an opportunity that where, where folks move beyond tolerance. Um, because at some point it's about tolerating. Do we really have to tolerate this again? No, I, I don't want to be tolerated. Um, I want to be a part of the of the whole um, experience, and that whole experience goes on throughout the entire uh, calendar year. Um, today is the is the anniversary of the Dred Scott decision, um, and um, I've been able to keep up with those types of events through a uh, calendar that's been published by the Equal Justice Initiative, EJI. Uh, and each day there is something different about something that happened, not only around African American history, but also around American history that impact that was impacted by um, um, Native American folks, um, Latino folks, um, and white folks as well. Um, so uh, it, it uh, for me, it's something that needs to be more than just heroes and holidays, um, but an opportunity to really celebrate the the many many accomplishments. Um, you know, of folks. Uh, if you ask somebody about Jackie Robinson, they could probably tell you a whole lot about Jackie Robinson in 1947. But if you ask them who was the first African-American to play in the American League, it didn't happen until seven years later, Larry Doby. Not very many people know that. That's another part of the story that needs to be told. And so, Elizabeth, you are at a museum that celebrates yes. African-American culture. You had a busy February. Absolutely. And so uh, to Hank's point, it is, I think, something that should be incorporated throughout the year. Uh, but the facts are that it is not being incorporated throughout the year. Uh, I was mentioning I worked every day in February, 28 out of the 28 days, Saturdays and Sundays included, I worked. Uh, we had people who wanted to do group tours, uh, companies that wanted someone to come out, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, uh, a lot of different different things, and, and I will speak to that. There were a lot of activities that were going on, but it was almost an immediate fall-off come March 1st, an immediate fall-off. Uh, there were people that I was speaking to and uh, trying to get on the calendar, and I said, you know, I'm going to have more flexibility in March, and there was and the interest was not there. If you can't come out in February, then we're not interested. So while I would love to say, and I do certainly believe, uh, African-American history is 365 days of the year, but the fact of the matter is that the emphasis is not there 365 days of the year. And so perhaps Black History Month is that urging that don't forget that this is important and this is something that needs to be highlighted and celebrated. I'd like to contribute. First of all, well, the idea of um, the history of Black History Month. Because you are a historian, oh. Dr. Gordon. That's your specialty. Well, okay. <laughs> 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 right. But anyway, Carter G. Woodson, okay, is responsible for what well, first of all, Carter G. Woodson graduated. Um, he was the second African-American to graduate with a Ph.D. from Harvard. And, of course, the first was W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, but in any case, um, in 1916, that's when he formed the um, 
Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. And of course, later, post-World War II, it has been renamed, or post-Civil Rights Movement, it has been renamed the Association for the Study of African American History and Life. But in any case, it was in 1926 that he initiated or created, um, and for this reason he is considered the father of black history, he created um, Black History Week. And so, and it was then called Negro History Week. Mm -hmm. Right, Negro History Week. And it was not until the bicentennial year of 1976 that um, it was expanded um, because I think of it was the bicentennial. That was expanded into Black History Month. But certainly the reason that he established that or created Black History Week this acknowledgement was because, right, this was the age of Jim Crow, the period of colonialism, um, segregation in the United States. It was a way in which, um, you know, he was encouraging black Americans who did celebrate and who did record their own history mm -hmm. to make that public and to reinforce the idea that indeed black citizenship was and remains and continues to be legitimate. Um, and so I think that's important, and, but I, at the same time, I think, as Elizabeth said, the idea that it's only in February, I think there's still this tendency to segregate and to separate black history and to try to sequester it and to make it somehow illegitimate. At the same time, you're trying to say it's legitimate. If it's legitimate, then it's, it should be so 12 months of the year and not just that one month of the year. Um, that's, um, that's troublesome. The fact that there is still this tendency to segregate even, and certainly it should go beyond this notion of heroes and what was the phrase? Heroes and holidays. Oh, right, heroes yes. and holidays, exactly. We're that's wonderful. We're all going wonderful. to incorporate that into our <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but certainly there needs to be critical analysis of the very systematic and systemic structures in our culture that permit continued segregation and disadvantage, and at the same time, um, continues the wages of whiteness. Now, I am not someone who likes the phrase privilege, which has become very popular mm -hmm. in, the, in racial discourse, because that's a way, who doesn't want to participate in privilege? That's another way of disguising or masking, obscuring the real violence that occurs. Entitlement or prerogative or the wages of whiteness, that is about violence. To call it privilege, I think, does a disservice. And it is certainly not critical analysis. So let's talk about something that Ted mentioned that we talked briefly about in another podcast, which is how do you answer those who say, well, you know, we don't have White History Month, we don't have, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why is it significant that we single out to have Black but History Month? But we do month? have White History Month. We have 11 month. White History exactly. Months. <laughs> Which is what we Every discussed day, the last time. Yeah. We I mean, live in a culture of, excuse me, we live in a culture of white supremacy, an ethos of Jim Crow. We have 12 White History Months. <laughs> like, I mean, the fact that we're willing to share some doesn't take away that the vast majority of my benchmarks and curriculum are focused on a very specific group of white founders of America that had no intention of giving up their seat of power whatsoever. So, And who were slaveholders. Who, who were slaveholders and who were a whole bunch of things that normally, it's really difficult to explain to a 12 and 13 year old that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and also owned slaves and also had children with a slave woman uh, and would not release them. Uh, it's, well, some it's, of them he did. Can I ask a question? You know, Absolutely. I'm going to be the white man here for a minute. Um, <laughs> so what happens is, so I understand what you're saying. Where do we, how do we figure out how to explain to kids or to anybody, look, Thomas Jefferson did this and this. Do we vilify him? Because I feel like there's a lot of vilification in general going on. Not that it, vilification doesn't mean that it's a bad thing that it's happening. I'm just saying that's what's happening. So I sit here sometimes as a person and I go, okay, that was history. 
Um, we're going back and we're trying to make an impact on what happened in the past and making an example of it. Is, are we doing a good service by doing that? Are we, are we doing it by saying, all right, this was your particular thing that you did that was awful and terrible and evil and horrific. Uh, everything else doesn't matter. Uh, I feel like that's where a lot of people look when we go back and we sh take down the statues and we talk about how he had Sally, Sally Hemings as his slave and concubine. Yes. And, and then we talk in the same, he was the writer of the Declaration of Independence. How do we figure out how to make it so we're not completely eradicating everything good he did and yet we're still recognizing the things that were not good in our day and age, in our perspective, what's going on right now. I don't, I don't think that it's, I don't think it's so much for, for me going back to um, try to eradicate what he did or what any of, of the, uh, the white owners of enslaved Africans um, did. Um, it's, first of all, it's important to know about. Um, those who don't remember the past are, are sure to repeat it. Um, but the people um, of today, and, and the, the, the doctor mentioned um, white supremacy. When you hear that phrase white supremacy, um, oftentimes people think of folks in hoods um, and things carrying tiki torches and um, burning crosses. White supremacy has to do with systemic advantage and who makes the decisions and who is in charge to make those decisions. So that, um, if, for example, at a school level, um, if the school district believes that a respect for difference is important and that that respect for difference not only needs to come from the superintendent but needs to extend down through all of the top administration and through every classroom throughout the district, and that there is a way for those who are in positions of supervising to measure whether or not and to observe whether or not that respect for difference is actually taking place, not only in February, but throughout the entire calendar year, um, then you begin to have change within your own sphere of influence. Yes, we, we can know all about the, the terrible things that folks did. That doesn't change um, the, the, the fact about what they did but about what the good things are that they did, all right, let, let's focus on that. Let's see where they have made contributions um, that might not have been made before. So um, I, I think it's important to not dwell so much on what happened back there. Yes, it's important to know that. Um, just as it's important to know that, that Washington, D.C., by and large, was built by enslaved Africans. Um, but um, let's not stay focused right there um, decades ago or centuries ago. Let's bring it forward to where are we right now and what are the systemic advantages of white supremacy that are still in place that need to be dismantled in, so that you know, uh, African-American history, women's history, Latino history, history of Native Americans, history of white Americans. And um, Asian-Americans. And Asian-Americans, yes, and those uh, who, who identify as multiracial. Um, those who have many different aspects of identity um, are able to celebrate it in a way that is just not heroes and holidays, but it's something that happens throughout the entire um, academic year for, for students, as well as for teachers, as well as for administrators uh, in a very meaningful way. And so how, how do we do that? How do we make it so that Black History Month is more than, hey, I'm going to go to a Black History Month program and hear a speaker, and I'm going to go to a Black History Month luncheon. Okay, I'm good. There, there are, in my experience in doing this work, there are three different kinds of people who, who come to um, attend sessions to check off things. One of them are prisoners. That's the, the person who the principal or the supervisor or the CEO says, you need to go to this. I, okay, because at you first I thought you meant like actual inmates. I was like, okay, no, where is no, this going? No, okay. they're, they're going because they're a prisoner. They have to go. Then there are tourists. Those are the kind of folks, they just go and they kind of look, oh, this is very nice. You know, I might be able to use something like that. Or, wow, that's pretty over there. Then there are the sort explorers. Sort of like slumming? Pardon? Sort of like slumming. Okay, I'll... I'll, I'll <coughs> I'll, I'll grab onto that too. Um, and then third, the, the last one are, are the tourists. Those are the pe people, I'm sorry, the explorers. Those are the people who say, you know, I can use this. Now let me figure out how I'm gonna use it because this is really important to know about. Um, and for the work that I do, 
I want everybody to be an explorer. They might come in a prisoner. They might come in a tourist. But I want them to be an explorer to figure out, you know, why is this important to me? And when I stand up in front of people, what am I, whether I'm a teacher or a judge or a doctor or whatever my profession might be, when I stand up in front of someone, what am I presenting with regard to my identity and affirming with regard to their identity. And so, Elizabeth, again, being at a museum, you see all of these people that Hank just described. Absolutely. So what are your thoughts? Uh, I like that that assessment. I think when we talk about history, to Ted's point, he was saying, you know, the vilification, it's not about vilification or exaltation. Uh, We're not trying to create heroes of Thomas Jefferson or uh, Martin Luther King. These are people. So let's deal in the historical facts. Let's deal, did, did Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence? Yeah. Did he own slaves? Yes. These aren't judgment statements. These are things that were true. And people can do both. And that's why uh, I love it when people come to the museum because they can see both sides, the comprehensive picture of contributions, of struggles. Uh, And these are things that, as explorers, they can incorporate into their own uh, living. They can incorporate the studies of overcoming and of challenges. They can recognize the instances uh, in which they are playing a part in shaping history, whether for positive or negative, and they can correct course if that's what they want to do. Um, because I think, I think whenever we don't teach history to make martyrs of people, we teach it so that the facts are elucidated and that you can understand that this information is true they did happen, the contributions were made, and these people, these things should be talked about, should be educated about, and should certainly be incorporated throughout the year. Amy, I see you raring to go there. I, mean, I, can, see you, I can see the wheels turning. So there's this great book by a guy named James Lowen called Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Gets Wrong. And the average 11th grade American history textbook is 888 pages long. It is a tome, and they have these names like American Pageant and uh, Celebration of Freedom. Um, And he makes this joke that says, can you imagine your chemistry book uh, being called such an insane title as that? And I think the thing, it's a a structural, (coughs) because so many classes teach through and by textbook, and it's not a living document, but it is by its very nature dead. And because some of these conversations are still being worked out within not only the historical community, but as textbooks get copy and pasted and copy and pasted and copy and pasted and passed down, then maybe they will add a page of inquiry. But, I mean, if we look at a textbook from 50 years ago, I think we would dismantle it and be aghast at what we read. And yet, I think 50 years from now, we're going to look at our textbooks and we as well will be shocked at what we read. And so then it is changing the mindset of here is this dead document of a textbook to in order to have explorers, in order to have inquiry, that our textbooks are filled, yes, maybe with facts, but also with lots of questions, lots of questions about how we don't have all of the answers, how it is very complicated, that Thomas Jefferson is not a simple historical figure, and that there are, are very few simple historical figures, and that the, the history of America is not straightforward, and that by focusing on the pageantry, mm-hmm. by focusing on the heroes, by focusing on the white men only, we're only going to do ourselves a disservice. And so then where Black History Month comes into it is ensuring and guaranteeing that we don't always only talk about this one sector of our history. Do we need to incorporate all different types of 
groups of people into all of our history? Absolutely, because all different groups are involved in all of our history. You don't have the American railroad railroad built if you don't have a large Chinese population being exploited in the western part of the United States or a large, in, you know, poor African-American population being exploited in the south, you know, I mean, yes. So it's all about, uh, it's funny that, Ted, you mentioned that because I was speaking to a class at UCF uh, sometime last month and and they said, they asked the same question. And my response was, we're supposed to be talking about the whole of the person. So their contributions, but their flaws too, because their flaws are a part of who they are and who they were. And so, yeah, I mean. Well, I think, I think what happens is that we should be, honest to God, we should be talking about all of the flaws. Everybody's a human being and we all have flaws. I think what happens and what goes on and why the media grabs onto it and there's such a divide, in my opinion, is that we then begin to want to make that person who's been dead for 200 years have retribution. And so all of a sudden we're going to fix it and we want to make it fixed and by fixing it we're going to tear down the statue, we're going to vilify that person. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be angry or upset or know that person. But I think what happens is people see that as a reaction. And you're like, well, how are we doing that? And yet all of us are uh, human beings. And we all have these different parts that we screw up on all the time, mess up on all the time. And yet the part we're focusing on, we're trying to make, we're going to pull Thomas Jefferson out of the grave and we're going to make him pay for being a slave owner. And I feel like if we could figure out the focus, like Elizabeth said, we're talking about trying to make it as a one human being who had multiple parts and who had lots of flaws. And we could talk about it as adults, which is why I love this podcast so much. You know what? We can Thank have you. a conversation and we can actually talk like adults and nobody's angry at anyone. Then if we had more of those conversations, m people would not be so reactionary. We'd be more proactive and we go, okay, well, let's address it. Um, like, oh gosh, I just lost a name, but like, um, Amy? yes, Amy, I'm sorry, Amy, like Amy said, um, let's talk about it, let's have a discussion, but to just bring them up and put their heads on a stake, I feel like is doing a disservice to what the people who are talking about it are trying to accomplish. I, I do want to clarify, as it, as it pertains to um, statues, uh, particularly, I guess we're talking about Confederate uh, generals or people who played... I think we should examine why those were erected in the first place. Well, and it agree. wasn't to necessarily celebrate, the, and no other country uh, celebrates people. The losers. Yeah, who, who tried <laughs> to losers. challenge. I love that, the losers. <laughs> I totally that, love exactly that. that's exactly what it is. No, I totally and, and, and so it, there, were, there was something, there was, there was something sinister about their erection in the first place to further Jim Crow. One so and to, so I'm not, yeah. and to terrorize the black population, exactly. not only in the South, but throughout the country. But I feel like what's happened is people are taking that to the next level. We're on a slippery slope. So I've heard things. No. There's been a lot All of media. Need, no. But let me ask you, like, so I heard about George Washington. George Washington, they want to remove from the dollar bill or whatever dollar he, bill he's on because he was also a slave owner. And there are stuff that's going on about that. And so I, I think that you can't disregard the fact that there are people who want to take it to that next level. What Elizabeth said and what you said are 100% right. It was put up in a very evil, um, we want to show you our power. It was about terror. But, so, so but people are taking But people are taking it to the next level, I feel like. I feel like we are moving. Okay, so we're not going to stop there. We should, I, I'm in agreement with you about the statues. But we, we're moving f past that, and so... But it's not about destroy. I suggest, it's not about destroying these statues. I mean, the whole notion, you know, people generally say in a reactionary way, you're trying to erase history. No, it's not about erasing history. Those statues can be placed someplace else other than public space, Agreed. which is financed by all of us Agreed. as taxpayers. In a museum would be a perfectly fine place for those kinds of objects. Totally agree. But not in public space, because public space, initially, they were put in public space as acts of terror. Yeah. They were artifacts. They remain artifacts of terror, artifacts of white supremacy. And we need to recognize that. 
That doesn't mean that all white people are evil, but it does mean that slavery and race were the central paradigm in American history. And they certainly, race continues to be the central paradigm in American history. So what do we do about George Washington? Because that's, I mean, that's still out there, right? Like, because if we can't take down George Washington, I mean, the thing is, you know, he, we call him the father of America. Okay, way to go, George. Um, but there, there can't be a sacred cow. Like we, I, I don't, it's very uncomfortable to address these things in our culture, to look at a figure like George Washington, because we have created already a false narrative and a false history that has been propagated since but where do you stop? This is my thing. So I, I think that... There is no one here, black, white, Latino, who's without fault and without flaws. And I don't know how you begin to uh, just dismantle absolutely every good thing that these people well, did. I don't think it's a dismantling. Certainly, I'm not without fault or flaw, but also, I don't need a statue. I would say if somebody was like, I'm going to put a statue of you in the park, it's not warranted. Wait, I thought you had one. <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, and, and like I said, at this point, it wouldn't be warranted. And so that's what I'm saying. It's not a dismantling of the actual history. It's a dismantling, if anything, of this uh, false narrative. And I don't have an issue with that. If, if the narrative is false, then it should be criticized and perhaps dismantled. Uh, so I don't think it's a thing of, you know, some type of retribution. I don't think that's it at all. I think it's, it's a, a push for accuracy. So let me ask right, you, it's so, not about trying ahead. to get whitey, as but, it were. <laughs> get whitey. I'm sorry. Get whitey. No, I get it. But I have a question for you. So the, the, the articles have been, let's take George Washington off the dollar bill. Okay. Who are you going to put on there that has no flaws? Animals. Put animals on. Take all the people off. We have moved from Black History Month <laughs> to Animal History Month. Nope. A dog bit me once, so I don't know. Put some bald eagles on there. Put a grizzly bear on there. I guess just the point is that there is no flawless human being. So where we go, what, what slope we go down, how we address it, we need to be prepared for the ramifications of that and the percussions of what we do. So you want to take... Uh, with George Washington off the bill, what are you going to do? People were trying to put Susan B. Anthony on a bill. She's not a perfect human being either. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how you find the perfect human being, and that's the only but part that I'm talking about. But it's not about finding the perfect human yeah. being. But if they want to remove him from the dollar bill, who are you going to put who on Who are there? they? I don't know. I've read a ton of stuff recently. And about. I actually haven't, haven't read, read that much. I haven't read anything, I really haven't like read like anything about that. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot about taking Andrew off. Jackson off the they $20 bill. They want Andrew Jackson off the 20 well, and That's a great thing. And I've heard that uh, it's now stalled. They had agreed to put Harriet Tubman on the 20 and now that, that that's kind of stalled with the current administration. I, I so. think what I hear Elizabeth saying, though, is I think there is a difference between distinguishing why the statue was erected. Agreed. Was it erected because we want to honor the person or was it erected because we want to scare people? Well, that's what it was. You're 100% right. It was to you know, scare. There, there's a difference those, between those I, two. I get why those need to be, I think, Vaughn, you, you said it. It should be in a museum somewhere, mm -hmm. not out in public where it's right. constantly a reminder. And that's what it, it's a mental manipulation. I agree. Yeah. Totally agree. So l let me um, bring this back to Black History Month. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Because someone said to me they were posting things about a Black History Month, and I was like, oh, I'm doing that too. And then the person said, but I posted something about um, a white woman, and I got a lot of backlash. Viola Louisa? Yes. Yes, yes, oh. and I think that Viola Louisa. Oh, I, I think it is, right. it's extremely important for she's white important. people. She's yeah. important, yes, and it's extremely important for white people to know that there were white people who were allies to African-American people. Was over, over the course of time. She yes. was anti-racist. Absolutely. She yes. was viewed as a race trader. For those who don't know, yes. she was driving uh, civil rights workers yes. uh, during the Selma to Montgomery yes. uh, march yes. and lost her life because she was killed by the And that's part of African-American history. That's part of American history. And, and to the extent that um, though the, she and other um, um, white individuals, you know, you know, Branch Rickey comes to mind as one. You know, people... Say so we know he was part of Over an old James boys club Reed. and whatnot too. So, um, but but to the extent that 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 um, 
white people are also included in the celebration of the histories um, of African-American people, of all folks uh, in the country, is very important. There were always abolitionists. So from the colonial period to the 20th and the 21st century, there have always been anti-racist whites or whites who were considered by their communities, right, race traitors, or we all know that other expression that's used. And so, Amy, you, you know, part of your work has been documenting some things like this. So when you heard me say that, your thoughts were... And you are a white woman as well. Yep, I am. And I say that as if, like, you didn't know that. Um, so, <laughs> now, I, you know. Amy, you're white, in case you didn't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, whenever I, I grew up reading lots of historical fiction, and I always tried to, you know, figure out where would I be in Roll the Thunder, Hear My Cry, or where would I be um, in, these, in these different scenarios. And so I... I appreciate criticism that is um, not done with hate, and so I do think it's okay for somebody, if, if they want to push back against honoring um, a fallen ally who happens to be white, like that, that doesn't bother me. Um, when, when hate is spewed, though, I think those are the things that, that really get to me, and I guess when it comes to the statues, sorry, I'm still on the statues. When it comes to the statues, I think that if we are so fearful about what the end is that we can't discuss what is in between, that is the thing that I would really want to walk trepidatiously into having these conversations about changing our monetary units and, and changing these sort of um, structures that honor people devoid of actually what they've done. Um, one of the American history textbooks had um, three-fourths of a page dedicated to Mickey Mantle. Just out of this 888 page, Mickey Mantle, he made the cut. Uh, you know, I'm not sure about Ada Lovelace or others, but, um, you know, making sure that we are brave enough as a society that we can tackle George Washington and we can tackle his legacy and still say, here's some incredible things and here are some things that we need to address because the root of the matter is those are still the same things we need to address within our society today. I mean, one of the things in my research that I discovered is that after the Civil War, white people did not lose their mind and go find black people everywhere and say, we are so sorry, oh my gosh, we were wrong. <laughs> there was not like a call for repentance everywhere. Even among the abolition community, yes, we are against slavery, but oh, no, you, <laughs> black people can't come into our churches. Right, like the, those yeah, things. The North and the South did agree, or rather abolitionists and slaveholders did agree on the inferiority of blackness. Sure, and so this is where John Brown becomes such a radical figure for a million reasons, but that he was <laughs> willing to start a race for a slave uprising for this exact purpose. And so, no, do I want to start anything like that? Absolutely not. But we have to be brave enough brave enough and willing willing to confront these things. And I feel like if white people aren't willing to do that, everybody else has started. <laughs> I never have a conversation with a black person and I'm like, did you know? And they're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> so I want to get back to something you said earlier. Why are you not bothered by the pushback of someone who says, well, you shouldn't be honoring white people during Black History Month? I mean, maybe part of me agrees. Uh, I just, I feel like whiteness takes up so much of the room and it's, it's so easy to focus on the white people that I want to be, I, I just want to focus on somebody else for a time. Um, and I don't have, I mean, I never have a problem when somebody decides to criticize somebody else in a way that's kind and loving. I think I think that's that's the point is um, it's discussions. It's about conversation, about uh, active listening, and then uh, gentle speaking. 
You know, I, I think it doesn't have to be hateful and to take those different perspectives and form your own. So I, I yeah, I think I, I, I honor that, I, I like that. I'm curious, what did you learn about uh, black history growing up? Because all of you are some different age ranges here. Um, Dr. Gordon, tell me what you learned about black history growing up. Oh, well, it was beautiful. Period, the end. And it was whiteness that was um, maladjusted. It made sense to me. What kind of messages? What I knew. Um, okay, well, first of all, I was born in 1950, so all of the men I knew were veterans of the Second World War. And so I knew they were heroes, okay? They had been in some branch of the military, whether it was Navy, Army, it didn't matter. They were all heroes. You had to be really old, okay? Like my grandfather, okay? <laughs> he would have been an example, right, of a man I knew who had not been to the war. Um, so that was that. And then all the women I knew, they were, they were beautiful. They were regal. They were imperious. And they carried themselves in a way that I just, I was in awe of them. And I still try to model myself, right, by, by those examples that were set for me when I was growing up. Not only women in my family, but women outside of my family, women I knew, um, women who were friends of my mother, friends of my parents. Um, but I guess my question is, what were you taught about black history? Was there a conversation about, let me tell you about all the important people in history who look like you. Okay, it wasn't that so much, but there was this critical analysis about segregation, okay, and that we could not support that. So there were movies I wanted to go see, but I couldn't go to the movies because I grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and so that meant we had to sit in the balcony. So I couldn't go to the movies, and I hated that, but at the same time, I understood that. Um, and, and segregation was real. There were signs that said for whites only or for colored. Um, and I understood, right, I was taught that that was an abomination, that that was wrong, that that was, uh, we are citizens and we deserve better treatment than that. So I, there was this critical analysis of white supremacy and what it looked like. But at the same time, right, there's this essay by, um, several scholars, but certainly one by Robert Wyaneth, The Architecture of Racial Segregation. And one of the things he says in this essay is that, right, there were all of the ways in which um, states and municipalities, institutions, certainly there was duplication, there was partitioning. Partitioning would have been movie theaters, okay, because, right, black people had to sit in balconies and white people sat on the first floor. Um, but at the same time, one of the things he says, right, and the Green Book was an example of alternative black spaces. And so I, I didn't have that language for it, but I understood that I was living in alternative black spaces. And those black spaces, while they might have lacked certainly the economic advantages of the large or of the white community, they were not lacking, however, in uh, humanity and creativity and um, intellectualism. And I understood that. That was something that was right. That's why I couldn't go to the movies. Amy, um, what did you learn? Um, so I was in kindergarten in 1988, so I never grew up without Black History Month. Um, it was always a significant part of my education. Um, I went to a school that was a magnet school um, in a housing community in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I was bused across town for their magnet program and it was very diverse and so we had a um, wonderful parade celebration with uh, an entire cast of characters. And so I remember third grade, Miss Fuller um, was just a wonderful inspiration um, to just, we did black history all year um, and we learned about all different people. So I had a very rich experience. Hank, what'd you learn? Not, <clears throat> not much. Um, I remember um, as a doctor, I, I learned a lot from my parents and from those who are around me. 
I was blessed to have a second grade teacher who was black and a fifth grade teacher um, who was black growing up. But I do remember that um, when I took the state exam uh, in New York State um, as a junior in high school and there was a question about African-American history on the exam, and my essay was, why are you asking me about something that you haven't taught me about, was what I wrote my essay about. Um, because wow. I have no recollection of learning even the things about peanuts. I have no recollection whatsoever. Now, it, it may have happened. I, I'll say that that may have, but there was absolutely nothing um, um, that, um, that I can remember that I learned in, in school. Um, I learned some things outside of school. Uh, growing up in, in New York City, um, there was not, uh, I could go to any movie house I wanted to uh, and sit wherever I wanted. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a product of um, academic tracking, um, being that is highly tra tracked high. I took a test, I did well on the test, they sent me in this direction. All the other African-American kids went in that direction. So it was, there were about four of us that wound up in a school and then two of us that wound up in a school. But I have absolutely no recollection of anything that was taught to me um, during the time that, that I was in, uh, in the New York City public schools um, throughout the late 50s and, early, and throughout the 60s. Not even with everything that was going on in the Not 60s. even with everything that was going on. Um, uh, I remember when Malcolm X was assassinated. Um, I remember certainly when, when the president was assassinated. Um, I remember when um, Martin Luther King was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy as well. Um, but there was nothing that was taught, if you will, in school that I have any recollection of whatsoever. Ted, what were you taught? <clears throat> I agree with Hank. I mean, I had absolutely nothing. I grew up uh, until I was 11 in the, in the New York school system. New Jersey and New York. I have no recollection of that, but because of my interesting history, which I've shared on here before, my great-grandmother was half black. Um, <clears throat> it was funny because we grew up in a, it felt like we literally were completely the opposite of what you would expect to have somebody who had that history. They were ashamed of it and kept it buried. And so I grew up in a world where um, black was not, um, acceptable. It was a very fascinating, awful world to grow up in. Uh, but that helped uh, teach me, I feel like, to be a little bit more, uh, I had to be different than those crazy people I grew up with. Uh, but I feel like that the school system itself and the environment that I grew up in had absolutely no connection to it whatsoever. There was no mention of it, no discussion of it. Um, anything that was black um, probably had some awful discord or terrible terminology to it. Um, and I just, f thankfully, uh, God uh, blessed me with the ability to not have to deal with that or to at least be able to overcome that. Uh, but I feel like the school system itself, absolutely nothing, like Hank said, zero. Even down here, I went to junior high and high school here, nothing, absolutely nothing. Elizabeth? Uh, my experience is so different. I think, though, first I have to say I thank my parents uh, because it was so seamlessly integrated into my whole life that it took me being an adult to realize like, they've been teaching me black history since I was a itty bitty child. And I think you were probably the youngest member of the panel that might well, have Well, I don't some. know. If, if, um, if Amy was in... in Elementary in in the eighties. I don't I don't know. She oh, okay. Be. I'm 25, Vanessa. I don't oh, know. Well, yeah. Other, other than that, <laughs> but um, but your but your background. Your father has a legal background, a yes, judge, yep. and your mom socially active, right. lawmaker in mm -hmm. the state legislature, mm -hmm. all of that. So I, I think um, growing up, uh, all of my schools were predominantly white, and uh, much to Hank's point, I tested and then I was put in these classes where literally it was probably four or five of the exact same African-Americans throughout in these, in these classes throughout until high school. I could probably name them uh, because it was just going to be us. We were the ones in the honors classes and the AP classes. But at home, uh, I think one of the people are so <laughs> freaked out. One of the first books I remember reading, and I'm talking like probably seven or eight, was Before the Mayflower. 
uh, by Lerone Bennett. One of my first books. I'm thinking I I remember reading that before like Judy Bloom or whatever. Um, and on random weekends we would watch Eyes on the Prize uh, or Roots. And then if we watched Roots, my parents are going to be like, "Well, have you read it?" And I'd read it. Um, so it it has been their very intentional. Um, aspect of teaching me black history. It has history. to be intentional. Uh, and, but, it's, but it was just, it, it wasn't, I never felt forced. It wasn't like, oh, okay, here's this lesson. No, we're going to talk about, you know, what happened in school. Well, why do you think that was? And what happened here? And what, what previously led up to it? So I've just grown up my entire life learning about uh, black history. And, and it just hasn't stopped. I went to a historically uh, black college and university, and uh, it continued there. And it is something that I still obviously uh, take part in today, working at the Wells Built Museum. So my whole life has been uh, filled with uh, the education of African American history. I think in, in middle school, I was on a black history brain bowl team <laughs> out of uh, Mont Show Books, which was a, a black bookstore here. Which was great, so, by the way. Yes. Uh, uh, but I ask that question because when I think about black history, I think about when I grew up in Alabama, that one day when I was, I think in the sixth grade, these uh, books arrived in the mail, and it was the Ebony Magazine, black history books. And so my mom said, I got these for you, and you should read them. And I was like, I don't want to read books. This was a summer. But I started to read them, and I was, like, fascinated by everything that I learned that I had not been taught in school. So I think that's why Black History Month for me has such a special meaning because of that. So in order to wrap up our conversation that went in just <laughs> some crazy, ridiculously great ways, I want to end by um, asking the question that we ask the guests. Hank has been here many times, so you know what's coming. And that is uh, to fill in the blank. When it comes to race, I admit and you fill in the blank. Hank, we'll start with you because you've been here before. I just did this last week. <laughs> when it comes to race, um, I admit that um, I have a lot to learn, um, especially when it comes to uh, what my passion is around academic achievement and closing the achievement gap and um, understanding the Understanding why students do well because of their, that aspect of their identity and also why they don't do well because of that, the aspect of their identity that is their race. Um, I, I admit that there's, there's a lot that I don't know and that, um, Lord willing, I've got a lot more time to, to learn it. We hope so. <laughs> Dr. Gordon, when it comes to race, I admit... Um, I feel inadequate, not because of my race, but because I always feel like there's more for me to read than I haven't read. Amy, when it comes to race, I admit. I admit that I still have a long ways to go on this journey. Ted? When it comes to race, I admit that I absolutely fail on a daily basis basis, um, being a proponent and being um, a better human being, uh, more protective. I feel like there are many more things that I could do that I don't do. Uh, I'm cognizant of it, so I'm hoping that's the first step in the path to recovery as far as that's concerned, but I feel like I have so much more I could do, and I want to do better. Elizabeth? First time guess, when it comes to race, I admit. When it comes to race, I admit uh, that definitely there's a lot more that I could learn. And I think there's a lot more that I could contribute um, on a daily basis in normal spaces. Uh, so I admit, I admit that because I work in an African-American history museum during the day, that sometimes in the evening, these aren't conversations that I want to have. But I should, or I could. Um, so I admit that there's more that I could do. Excellent. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ooh, well, that was one of our more lively discussions that we've had for the podcast. They were um, all great. There were some great points that they brought out, and 
no shortage of discussion there, Keith. This is this is very true. <laughs> so yeah, no, that's a that's a good panel that we assembled there, just talking about um, Black History Month and why it's still relevant, and you know, kind of a. Interesting to hear them talk about what they learn. Just history in general. Exactly, because yeah. that's what it is. It's it's about history, but just hearing them talk about what they learned um, in school about Black History Month. Yeah. And and I mentioned what you said that you learned. So yeah. So when you asked me, I I let you. I I was reminded that probably grow, growing up in let's say northern Florida, southern Georgia, lower Alabama. Yeah. That. Um, I basically every every February they would put famous black people on the board and say we're celebrating Black History Month. <laughs> and, and who were these famous black people? Um, Oprah. Uh huh. Um, George Washington Carver. George Washington Carver. He invented the peanut. <laughs> Before there was no peanuts, and then he came <laughs> along and he invented peanuts. Dr. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther of King, course. Yes. And you probably learned about Rosa Parks too. Yes. Was she part of the mix? Yes, she 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 got in there a couple times. So that was the extent of your Black History Month, right? Weirdly enough, when we got to middle school, we learned a lot about the the slave trade, but on an economic level, mm-hmm. it was like very mm-hmm. it was broken down on that level, mm-hmm. not like hey this is bad, but like hey look how much money we made. Sanitizing, yeah. the atrocity of yeah. slavery. So there's that. All right, so that's why we felt it was important to do this podcast about Black History Month in March. So you keep bringing that I'm just, up. It's just funny. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it is every month should be Black History Month. Exactly. I'll just so thank you for joining us. Don't forget to contact us and and connect with us on all of our social media platforms. This has been another edition of Colorblind Race Across Generations. I'm your host Vanessa Eccles with technical producer Keith. Hey, that's Until me. Until next time, see ya.